1: And the collection is free of sulfates, parabens, dyes, and mineral oil. So experience something new and discover what's good with the Pantene Nutrient Blends Collection.
2: Dear Young Rocker is more than
3: just a podcast about music. It's a memoir of how it feels to survive high school when you don't fit in and the freeing feeling of picking up a guitar for the first time. It's also advice for anyone who is or was young and has ever felt weird or alone.
2: Dear Young Rocker is written and narrated by me, Chelsea Erson, executive produced by Jake Brennan, and comes to you from Double Elvis Productions. Listen to Dear Young Rocker on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey, this is Annie, and welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You. Today, Samantha and I have something a little different for you. Changing it up. Changing it up. We're trying to keep it fresh. Um, In the last episode, in our ongoing miniseries on trauma, we talked about reasons why survivors might not come forward and then some things that might happen if they do, in a more public sense, because like we said, coming forward can mean a couple of different things. But in that more public way of reporting, um, and we we touched on a few of the cost, financial, mental, and physical. And a couple of weeks ago, we brought in two interviewees to talk about rape kits and the process of reporting, um, a survivor and a researcher. So first, before we go any further, um, trigger warnings. This episode is not appropriate for everyone to listen to. Please hear that. Um, you're going to be listening, you're going to be hearing the story from a survivor about her sexual assault and the traumatic process that she went through of reporting. And it's, it's nothing too graphic, but it's still very difficult to hear. So please consider your own mental health when deciding to listen or to not listen.
0: Yeah, I think for both of us, we had to come back together to
1: make sure everybody in our little
0: crew was okay because it was an intense yeah. uh, process. But yeah, we did speak with two badass women and their I- interviews were awesome. Um, And it somehow complemented each other, which is not just somehow. Of course, it complemented each other. And we thought we'd share them with you as one episode. So one is a researcher, Renee Shelby. She is with Georgia Tech. Yeah. And the other is a close friend of mine, Rebecca, who was willing to come and talk about her personal experience with us.
2: So here's her story. I was sexually assaulted in July of 2015 um, in North Carolina. In my hometown, I was uh, engaged at the time. Um, I had flown to North Carolina for my bridal shower, and um, I was going to be there for like a week, kind of do some like more wedding planning with my mom and stuff. I was getting married in Seattle, so it was very important for my southern family <laughs> to have uh, you know a bridal shower with the the church members and family that was in North Carolina and all of that. Um, so I had flown back home, and my first night in town, I went out to get a drink. Um, And my father's a Southern Baptist minister, Um, so, you know, we don't drink at all and we certainly don't ever talk about it. Um, Mm -hmm. And so when I went out to get a drink, I lied to my dad and I said, hey, I'm going to uh, cook out and I'm going to get a milkshake, Um, you know, uh, because he couldn't see through that lie. Um, (laughs) But yeah, I went out to uh, like a local bar where uh, I, you know, out of college, knew a lot of friends who were there and and stuff, Um, went out, I ended up not really seeing anybody that I knew. My fiancé was in, uh, like, a, an actor rehearsal thing that I knew was going to go till like, 10 p.m. in Seattle. So I knew I, I would be able to talk to him at, like, 1 in the morning. So that was kind of my justification for going out. I struck up a conversation with this guy. I was smoking a cigarette, and um, he asked if he could, like, bum one from me. Then, like, his other friend came. I found out they were in the military. They were both, like, very good-looking guys, to be honest, um, which I think is something that I really struggle with now in hindsight, um, thinking that they were attractive. You know, At one point, like they bought me a beer to kind of like celebrate that I was getting married because I had shared with them that I was home for my bridal shower and all of that. And um, when they ordered me the beer, I said, well, I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'll be right back. But when I came out to the bar... The guy kind of had his – he kind of had the drink, like, behind him, which was kind of weird in hindsight. You know, hindsight's bias. So he gave me that drink. I think they ordered me another drink after that. And at that point, things got really hazy. Mm -hmm. Um, I remember them, like, leaving the bar um, and seeing them leave. Um, My car was parked maybe a block up the street in between two streetlights and um, I was trying to kind of sober up, but I like was feeling really drunk and like I couldn't stand up well and stuff. You know, so um, at this point, I did not ever end up calling my husband um, or fiance at the time. And um, I left the bar. The bar had closed down. And as I was walking to my car, these two guys came out of the little alleyway there and into one of the streetlights. And they were like, hey, do you want to come to our house and drink some wine? And. It felt kind of like I was a robot or something. Like I was like, yeah, that sounds good. I I didn't feel like myself. Um, So I'm pretty convinced that I was roofied or drugged in some way. Mm -hmm. Um, I vaguely remember getting to their house. I know one of them got in my car with me and drove my car to where they were going. And the other guy drove behind us. Um, which also seems really weird in hindsight. Um, I remember getting to the house, and I remember that they had a little dog and that the dog's name was Rosie, and she was really cute. And uh, beyond that, I don't really remember anything until the next morning. Um, At around, like, 7 a.m., I woke up because my phone was going off, like ringing and i was like it kind of like woke me up and when i opened my eyes one of the guys was on top of me and he was um assaulting me and i remember kind of like shoving him off of me and and like trying to kind of make sense of where my things were my like purse and stuff were like over in like the kitchen area so i like grabbed my phone it was my dad my dad had been calling me um and i like ran out of the house got in my car and i had no idea where i was Mm -hmm. So like I start kind of driving, and at that point I still I it was I still felt very weird, like I was really shaky and like knew that something bad had happened, mm-hmm. um, but I wasn't exactly sure what because I couldn't remember any of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I managed to finally get back to my parents' house. I know my when I talked to my dad, my parents had called the sheriff. There were people out, kind of like looking for me kind of thing. Um, And I like lied to them because I was like, oh, I got to keep this lie going of not drinking, you know, um, and protect myself from my parents um, in that like child mindset. So um, I lied to them and I went to visit my best friend and I was spending the night at her house that night and I explained everything that happened. And she was like, girl, you were raped or something like you need to go to the hospital. Like we need to get you somewhere and like do a rape kit. You need to call the police. Um, and I was like, no, I really don't want to do that. I'm getting married in two months. Like, I really don't want to like drag this out, you know, and like, I don't even know these guys' names or really even what they look like other than that I thought they were kind of cute. I remember calling my fiance and I told him and, um, that was a really hard phone conversation because I was like, is he going to believe me? Right. You know, and, um, he did at, at that moment in time and he was very pro going to the hospital, going to the police, telling my parents. And like I said, I was very anti that. I did not want to upset my parents. I didn't want to make it this big thing. Really didn't want to like have to deal with it, you know. Um, (laughs) So my best friend and I, we woke up really early the next day. We're like, we're going to go and get a rape kit done. We're going to just do this behind my parents' back. It'll be really easy, right? We'll just go to the hospital, have a rape kit done, file a report, whatever. My parents don't even need to know about
1: it. As you can guess, it unfortunately is not that easy most of the time, as our expert has discovered through her work.
3: My name is Renee Shelby, and I am the research director at USPARC, which is a nonprofit located in Atlanta's Fulton County Juvenile Court. I am also a researcher at Georgia Tech, and I work there in a couple different capacities. Um, And then I also do research just around town. So I'm a research fellow at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in their LGBTQ Institute. And I also work with the mayor's LGBTQ advisory board doing research for them. So if you're assaulted and you go in and you report that you have uh, been raped and you would like to be medically examined, so the nurse will sit you down in a private room, and they'll first they'll want to do a history. And this part should really be private. It should just be the person who experienced the assault and the nurse, just right. so they can make sure that they can really get into it. And she'll take a history, and she'll document it down. Each rape kit looks different in different states. Some states have... Uh, protocols um, that the entire state uses, like Texas has one, um, but places like here, Georgia, most states, it's kind of a free for all. Mm. The different hospital can purchase whichever one they use. So there's a lot of inconsistency in what's collected. So, you know, after they take that history of what has happened to you, then they'll go through and there's essentially this piece of paper and it has uh, like a person, (laughs) like this outline of a person and they'll go through and they'll, they'll document, they'll swab you you know, pick hairs off of you, um, pick any fibers. If the hospital has more technology, so they have like a colposcope, which mm-hmm. can, as uh, a camera, that can magnify up to 40 times, they may photograph parts of your body, um, do, do different things. But when they actually get to, you know, swabbing your body, to pulling evidence off of you, you can have whomever you would like in the room with you. And it should always be about, um, re-empowering that person. So, you know, I there should be a lot of communication between the person who's doing the exam and the person who experienced the assault. And should, at every step, it should be about asking, you know, is this something that you want to do? Here's what we are going to want to do. And if that person's uncomfortable with, they do not have to move forward with any step. The exam can take, you know, anywhere between I've heard someone say an hour, but I think four hours is like the real minimum that it can be, in then upwards of six hours. Wow. And then once it's completed, um, the product of that exam, all those swabs, all of those um, envelopes, that gets packaged up, and that's your rape kit. So what they'll say is, you know, for the science, and in the best case scenario, if you're assaulted, that you know you. You don't go to the bathroom, you don't take a shower, you don't change your clothes, and then you just go and get the exam. So they can get as much evidence off of your body because they're going to treat your body like it's the scene of the crime. Right. So from an evidence perspective, the ideal is that a person has you know, preserved that scene of the crime as much as possible. But that is incredibly difficult for someone who's experienced assault.
2: And uh, we went to the emergency room and we were like, hey, this is what happened. Um, You know, I need to get a rape kit done. And they were like, okay, well, that's going to take several hours. And I was like, well, that can't happen because I have my bridal gown fitting at 11 a.m. And I remember the nurse came in and she was like, if you leave right now to go to your bridal gown fitting, it's going to seem like you didn't really get raped. And I was like, well, I need to go get my bridal gown fitted. And, you know, I don't really want to get my parents involved, so I'm going to leave. So I left. Um, got my bridal gown fitted, went out to lunch with my parents after, and, uh, my fiance had called my mom, and he said, hey, you really need to talk to Rebecca about what happened the other night because she's not being fully honest with you, and it's a situation that you need to know about, and she needs help with. And I told her exactly what happened, and she got on the phone with the police right away, and she said, hey, you know, we called the other night because our daughter was missing. And uh, it turns out she was assaulted by two men, and we don't know who they are. And um, we just don't know what to do. And so then my parents took me to uh, the hospital in our county. It's in the county that it happened in. And um, we waited for probably four hours before I actually went into the rape kit. And um, yeah, it was. uh, I think I was at the hospital for about 14 hours that day um, between talking to police talking to the detectives, talking to the nurses, having the actual rape kit done, um, and then finally being released and sent home. Um, And then from there, uh, of course, the report was filed.
0: But what about the rape kit? Who could administer them? Here's Renee.
2: Now,
3: you all definitely have heard of saying sexual assault nurse examiners. So these are the gold standard in doing... Uh, forensic medical exams. They are trained nurses. They have gone through the certification. They know about trauma. They know how to work with the and empower the survivor. And they know about the compensation process. So if you get a rape kit done with a sane. More than likely, all of those things are going to happen. They're going to let you know about the process. They're going to help help you understand that you know you won't have to to pay for this. That it will be compensated. That all of this is taken care of. Um, you know, if you walk into places like the Day League in uh, downtown Decatur, you know they have a sane program right there on site that they can do at no cost. There's advocates there. Mm-hmm. They handle all of this. There's only like 26 sayings in all of Georgia. Um, We have 159 counties, you know. (laughs) We are a big state. So more than not, um, and this is especially for if you live in a rural area, you may not have access to someone who's extremely knowledgeable in this. And so then it kind of becomes a (laughs) crapshoot. What is going to happen to you? It's just so inconsistent. So there's what's supposed to happen and then what does happen. Um, some hospitals will even turn you away. There was an article done, I think it was in the Washington Post, uh, about this woman who experienced assault. She uh, believed that she was roofied. She woke up the next morning. She knew something wasn't right with her body. And uh, so her and her fiancé they were like, all right, let's go get a kit done. So they go to the first hospital, and so they're waiting there those hours, not going to the bathroom, not eating, not changing their clothes, waiting to get that rape kit done. And eventually the hospital turns them away, and they're very confused. They're like, we can pay for this like we have insurance we can pay so they go to another hospital the hospital refuses them there says we don't do these you need to go to this other hospital um, again waiting hours not able to go to the bathroom you're not supposed to drink anything she hasn't changed her clothes she hasn't showered um, finally gets to the third hospital um, I think it's something like 12 hours later she's just been waiting and finally she gets in to me I think that case is more common than not where those hospitals are not knowledgeable about this process and what happens is survivors just become collateral damage and all
1: of it. Why do you think we have so few nurses, sane nurses?
3: I think it can be scary to know that you might have to go and testify. Right. I think that can be a fearful situation where people don't even know what to expect. And you can imagine if the nurse is afraid that that. Right. I think they're probably terrified.
0: As well as the trauma for a nurse, as we had previously talked about, secondary trauma is very, very common, especially with people who are um, immediate people who come to responding any of the emergencies, including doing the rape kits. I'm guessing also when it comes to financially, they're not compensated for taking on this extra training and taking on this extra stress. Um, One of the things I did want to ask you, you were talking about uh, the rape kit. Do you mind telling us exactly from walking into the doctor's office and was, first of all, was the nurse, do you know if she was a, a certified sand nurse? Sand yes, nurse? so she, uh, she was not. Okay. Um,
2: uh, this And I will say my nurse was awesome. Okay. Um, yeah, yeah. I have told people since that experience that I personally felt like the rape kit itself was more traumatic than the actual assault. Right. Um, because in my particular case, and I don't mean to, you know, put any, like to say, that it was not traumatic, right? But because I did not remember it, um, it was uh, it was worse having to go to the doctor and have all of these things poked and prodded and taken from you and all this stuff. Um, she was very sweet. She was um, her name was Erica, mm-hmm. and I've always wanted to like track her down and just write her a little like thank you note because she was awesome. I was waiting in this hospital room for like ever, you know, um, because it took forever, I guess, for uh, the police department to get the rape kit and then get it over to the hospital. Right. I know she came into the room maybe 30 minutes before it happened and she was kind of like, hey, you know, this is what we're going to do. The detective's going to drop off this box and it's going to have all the instructions in it. And she's like, I've never done one of these. And I just want to be really honest with you. The girl who usually does them isn't here today and she can't come in. I'm going to be doing this with you, and I've watched them done, but I've never actually done one. If I have to read the instructions more than once, I just don't want you to be freaked out. I was like, I've never had a rape kit done, so it's cool. Like, right. we'll get through it, you know. And um, she was really great. They had to pluck 50 pubic hairs. And then um, I know there was, like, an anal swab. Of course, there was, like, the full pelvic examination, and they had to bring a doctor in for that portion. Um There were uh, – they had to, like, comb through things and, like, there were little bags and all this stuff. It was – I mean, it took about between three and four hours to do just that. Um, And I know the pelvic exam was the final thing. And at that point, I had been in there, you know, for three and a half hours or something with this nurse. And I also know that they were not – they wouldn't allow me to leave the room to, like, use the bathroom or anything, you know, for evidence purposes I remember when she had to do the anal swab, I started crying. I remember looking at her after that and just being like, wow, like, this is traumatic for you, too. Like, you're going to go home and your partner is going to be like, how was your day at work? And you're going to be like, well, I randomly had to do a rape kit and it was horrible. Right. You know, Um, but yeah, it was it was really rough. And um, I think it it kind of it, it just made me even more question why I had gone to the police. It felt a little bit like it was like, okay, prove how much you wanna go through with this. Then at that point, I went through several, um, for lack of a better word, interrogation sessions with the detectives who were assigned to my case um, while I was still in North Carolina, and then flew back to Seattle. And, um, you know, at that point, I didn't really hear much from them. I would call them a lot, but not get a lot of phone calls back. Didn't hear anything. In April, I finally like called and he answered the phone, and um, he said, "Oh, I thought you knew the DA dismissed it like back in October." And I was like, "No, I didn't ever hear that." And uh, you know, since then, I've called you several times. Right. Uh, so that was very frustrating to find that out. And at that point, um, I know that it had been almost a year since it had happened. And I believe the, I don't know, like the statute of limitations or whatever in North Carolina is like one or two years or something. It was like just on the verge of like it, like I wouldn't be able to do anything about it. Um, So at that point, I just let it go. The statutes of limitations in Georgia. Mm -hmm. So under our law,
3: prosecution for sexual assault is supposed to happen just four years after the offense, Mm -hmm. unless you have DNA evidence. And then that statute of limitations goes away anytime that you have that to establish identity, it extends things.
2: It's very upsetting when it's like, oh, okay, like, you know, this really did happen to me. There was, like, kind of a lack of evidence because I went to get the rape kit later than I was supposed to. Um, But, you know, at the same time, it did happen. And um, as well, there was an audio recording. There was an audio recording on my phone that was about three and a half hours long. And it was um, from, like, the moment that we walked into their house Mm -hmm. until, you know, the audio recorder finally cut off. I had no idea that that was on my phone because I was, like, completely messed up. It's like I did not ever remember hitting record. Um, And in my final little interview or interrogation or whatever with the police, they were like, oh, you know— do you remember, like, giving verbal consent to the police officers when you were at the hospital to take your phone? And I said, yeah, you know, of course, because I didn't know where I was. And they were going to use the little GPS thing or whatever to navigate, like, to figure out where I had been to pinpoint who, like, what house and, like, who it belonged to and all of this. Right. And um, they, I guess at that point, had found this recording. And so they had been sitting on this recording for, like, a week and had not told me about it. And they said, "Well, we found this audio recording of this evening on your phone." Um, and they were like, uh, "Why don't you just sit in here and listen to it?" And we'll like once you're done, come and get us, and then we'll talk more. And I didn't listen to the whole thing because I couldn't. Um, in the audio recording, I sound completely drunk, like out of my mind. Like I do not sound like myself. Um, it was very like traumatic to listen to. Yeah. Um, and beyond that, I am continually saying, like, no and stop and don't and things like that. And um, I, it's just—it it's, was really difficult to listen to. And then on top of that, it's like, okay, they had all that evidence. Like, they had that. They had an audio recording of me saying no and telling them to stop.
1: And that was not good enough. If that's not good enough, then what is? According to Renee, not rape kits. And we'll get into that after a quick break for word from our sponsor.
0: Okay, so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something And Sundays on NBC, watch it live. There's sure to be big twists and huge surprises. So you'll want to enjoy your Good Girls experience in a spoiler free zone. The all new, all
0: hilarious season of Good Girls, Sundays on NBC and stream anytime.
1: And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And here's Renee
3: when we hear rape kits, you think, like, the science, you know, like, DNA testing, this is foolproof, you know? Like, I swabbed your DNA off my body. Like, you clearly did this. But the science is not, uh, does not prove lack of consent, which is what the criminal justice system is really focused on. Um, it, It just can't. Like, all it can do is, is kind of, like, yes or no. And then it's up to us, society, the the prosecutor, law enforcement to interpret that and say, did something happen or did something not happen? Which is where all the bias starts to roll in because in that interpretation process. Well, you guys may have heard about the Detroit backlog um, and how that was uncovered. So this is the case of Calvin Ray Kelly, and for 25 years, this truck driver, Kelly, he would use his knowledge of these freeway dark spots to prey upon low-income black women who would not be believed by police. In 2007, one of these women, Shawana Hall, was held by Kelly at knife point and raped three times in one hour. When she finally escaped, she flagged down a police officer who drove her to the Kalamazoo YWCA for the forensic medical exam, and she got a rape kit. Now, uh, years, okay, so this is 2007. Um, Detroit still has, uh, is not processing their backlogs efficiently, and her kit just gets forgotten. And it's put into that warehouse where it's ultimately discovered and then launched and what I see is kind of this resurgence about the backlog testing and going back. So after all these years, um, you know, it, it's, her kit sits there, and then it gets discovered, and then they finally fundraise to test it. Um, and eventually, her kit gets moved to the crime lab, and it gets tested. Um, and when they test her kit, they find that Kelly's DNA matches to 11 assaults from other rape kits in four states between 1985 and 2010. Um, so now it's 2017. It's a full 10 years after she's assaulted. Um, and they take him to trial. And in, uh, they go through the whole trial. They present the rape kit evidence. Shawana Hall gets up and testifies. Someone else testifies. They present that his DNA has been, you know, this guy's clearly a serial rapist and we have evidence to prove it. And the jury takes one day to deliberate, and the jury has eight women and four men on it, mostly white. Ten of the 12 jurors are white. And they say, uh, he's not guilty. <laughs> and <laughs> so infuriating. So then the Michigan uh, Assistant Attorney General, um, you know, they will sometimes interview juries afterwards to be like, you know, like, why did this happen? And so the jury says they just didn't believe her testimony because they didn't think someone like her could be raped. And so that they just didn't believe the DNA. And then one month later, Shawana um, died of an opioid overdose. So she never got any justice at all.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's Mm -hmm. infuriating. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. very, very much so. I mean, this whole episode is on the cost of coming forward, and that illustrates so much of it. Right. Because just the, the mental and emotional toll and the physical, like, everything you've gone through and you wait and you wait and you wait... And you think, well, I did what I should have done mm-hmm. to get justice, and then I still don't. Yes. I went through all of that, and I still For don't
0: nothing. Right. And on top of not being able to get justice, you're called a liar. Yes. <laughs> you're being judged based on your race and based on your economic status. That has nothing to do with whether or not you can be victimized, but therefore you are not believable and you're not worth the time of our society, of our people, of our judicial system to actually stand up for. <laughs>
3: I mean, it really shows why DNA and rape kits won't save us. Right. I mean, they they can do a lot and like the rhetoric around them is is a little bit of a savior narrative, right. you know, that they are going to prove what happened to you, that they are going to specifically identify the assailant. And then uh, the third one that gets invoked a lot is that it will prevent future rapes. Because, and this responsibility is placed on victims to get it. By saying that you getting this rape kit is going to prevent this from happening to someone else. And the idea behind it is that you would get the rape kit and somehow magically the criminal justice system is going to be, you know, quick, 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 which it never is. Right. You know, we're going to neatly wrap wrap up this uh, prosecution right. and now this bad guy is off the street. But right. that just never happens. I mean, look at Brock Turner. Right. Two eyewitnesses and a rape kit. Right. And... He's and a, a swimmer, swimmer
1: though. But he's a good, he's <laughs> he's good, got good
3: a guy. Future. He <laughs> has
0: a future. We don't want to ruin his fe- future. And that was how, what I was going to say. Even if they are prosecuted and they are convicted, who's to say it's actually justice? Yeah. Other than, okay, you believe me, but you don't believe that he is the criminal that we see him as or uh, the pr- predator yeah. that he has come forward as. And you're saying that his time was worth more than mine. His life was worth mm-hmm. more than mine. And it's still just just as bad, almost, that you had gone through and sacrificed your um, your livelihood, essentially, yeah. to try to get justice. And in the end, the justice is worth maybe 10 days, 8 months, you know, any of mm-hmm. those time frames. And it's kind of like, is it really worth it?
3: Or they just plead down to something else. Exactly, right. Which is another reason why it's difficult to measure, like, these rape kit prosecutions. Like, you look at the, no- so there's that number um, that RAIN has put out. You know, so for every thousand uh, people who are assaulted only like four point five perpetrators will, you know, get a felony conviction. Right. Like the numbers are just appalling. Right. <laughs> I think one overlooked problem is how much uh, the role of law enforcement in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've, there are a lot of wonderful law enforcement out there that I'm friends with and partner with and, and do a really great job. But law enforcement have a lot of discretionary power in deciding to prosecute a case or not. They are that first step, and there's a lot of cases to get unfounded. You know, there's roughly around 18,000 police departments in the U.S. Hmm. Um, That's a lot of different jurisdictions who may come across a rape kit who have their own protocols on what to do. So even just tackling that issue is a lot, but police are that first step in saying, you know, we're never going to bother with your case. We're just going to unfound it. The National Institute of Justice has investigated um, Baltimore, Detroit, Hmm. into looking into, like, what happens with with those rape kits in the Detroit one. So of the 11,341 rape kits that just were forgotten in that warehouse, um, they disproportionately belong to women of color. Wayne County, which is that county, is is 54% white, but 81% of the rape kits belong to black women. Hmm. So, you know, there's definitely disparities happening there. And that law enforcement's racial biases can really come out. So the DOJ did an investigation into Baltimore because the complaints were so egregious Mm -hmm. uh, about what was happening there. And in the investigation, they found that when police were investigating sexual assault cases, um, that they were using uh, racial slurs against uh, women, um, systematically unfounding their cases, which is where you just close the case without... Investigating, you just say, oh, nothing happened here. We're just going to close it. Right. Sorry, I don't want to say that's the only reason that something is unfounded. There's, there's more reasons. But right. anyway, racial bias is rampant right. there.
1: Another aspect of the rape kit we need to talk about is the financial cost.
3: So the first thing to know, the cost of getting your forensic medical exam in the rape kit completed will vary by state. So most states have uh, crime victims' compensation laws. So if you are assaulted and you go to have your rape kit done because you're a victim of a crime, that you should not have to pay for it. And so in Georgia, um, the Criminal Justice Coordinating Council has set some guidelines about um, what it will cost to get a rape kit. And they will reimburse you. um, They will pay for it up to a cost of $1,000 turns out it costs a lot more than a thousand dollars to get a RAFE kit done often. Just for the medical exam, um, it's estimated that that costs $335.70 just for the examination. Then um, the cost of that kit, the cost of the box and swabs, that's only $6.29, which is good. Um, If you add on Colposcopy, which is that camera that can magnify and visualize trauma, that's $289. Urine culture, $15. Lab tests for pregnancy, uh, $12. Gonorrhea culture, $80. Chlamydia culture, $36. Hepatitis panel, $88. Herpes panel, $56. It keeps adding up. It's roughly $1,600 to get your rape kit done. Here in Georgia, according to Criminal Justice Coordinating Council. So that's a lot of money. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Um, Victims, survivors are not supposed to incur that cost. But if the hospital personnel is not knowledgeable about the victim's compensation process, which can be very complicated, then that survivor can end up incurring those costs. Right. When we speak about the cost, there's the cost of getting it at the hospital, and then there's, like, kind of these unseen costs right. that are attached to the rape kit. You know, so on, on average, it's $1,500 to test the kit. You know, so, so now there's a cost attached to that, which certainly uh, the survivor is not incurring, but, you know, that is still a cost associated. So there's the cost to um, staff... Law enforcement to investigate the cases. You know, Atlanta is a very large city, but our special victims unit is small. Right. Um, just a handful of people right. who are investigating all these cases. And those are the people you want to do it because they're at least, you know, more trained and used to investigating these cases. And then you have the cost for the prosecutor right. and then you have the cost for the trial. So all those things add up. So when we only talk about, you know, the backlog in testing, it's like, okay, first, then we got to like work to follow that case all the way through, and then, like, dealing with the biases.
0: The survivor isn't meant to incur any of the cost of the rape kit, but that isn't always the case. Here's Rebecca about what happened after she got her rape kit done.
2: So after all of that, I remember leaving the hospital and, uh, like, checking out or whatever, you know, and you you have to sign out and all this stuff, and um, they gave me, like, prescriptions for various things. I had a lot of prescriptions. It Mm -hmm. was, like, the—it was Plan B— it was uh like an hiv uh prep thing yeah um that was fairly new at the time too i think um like i had to get a shot for like gonorrhea or something i mean there was a there was a, it was a lot of medical stuff right. um and when i left we went to a pharmacy and i got all of these pills and i was like you know supposed to take them all and and everything and that was really expensive i think that was like probably like 300 bucks and i had full insurance at the time you know mm-hmm. I also was told that I needed to schedule, like, different appointments to make sure that I was fine. Right. Um, and uh, I know those were pretty expensive. I paid all of those out of pocket, and I don't have the receipts for those anymore. But I would say probably upwards of, like, 600 bucks. you know. Um, and I had kind of been like, okay, you know, the rape kit thing is done. Like, you know, no big deal. They had told me, okay, you know, uh, for this medical bill that you'll receive in the mail. Uh, this is when I checked out of the hospital They were like, when you get it in the mail, you need to send a copy of it to Crime Victims Compensation. They gave me forms and stuff at the hospital that I took with me to Seattle. Um, I had filled all those out. When I got my first medical bill, I was shocked. I was just wrecked. It was like $4,032 or something just for the rape kit. And um, I was like, oh, my God. So I sent in all the stuff. Um, And just kind of waited, you know, because it's like a fairly long process. I at one point was uh, on like first name basis with this woman at the Crime Victims Compensation Office in North Carolina uh, because I would call and be like, hey, what's the status with this? You know, because I don't have $4,000 just laying around. Right. So I was assaulted in July of 2015. In February of 2017, um, I had received another bill from a collections agency, which means that the hospital had sold that debt to somebody. And um, they were like, we need you to pay this by next month. Um, And it's $4,000. So I called them and I was like, clearly there's been a mistake. I was like, I was assaulted, blah, blah, blah. And uh, they were like, you just need to call Crime Victims Compensation because clearly something got lost. So when I called in February of 2017, The woman at Crime Victims Compensation was like, oh, yeah, um, I will look up your file really quick. And she looked it up and she was like, oh, I see what happened. The police department never submitted their copy of the police report. I was like, okay, well, that's fine. We can still have them do that, right? No. The statute of limitations in North Carolina is such that at that point in February 2017, it was past that. So even if they had retroactively sent it, it was beyond the time frame for it to be like oh my accepted. And so I just spent the next like year dealing with this collections agency, trying to get them to understand, trying to get them to talk to the hospital, talking to the hospital, right. explaining to them, you know, um, nobody really seemed to care. So I finally, I think last year, so in like March of 2018, I set up a GoFundMe and I was like, screw it. I don't even care who knows if I've been raped. Like, whatever. There's no shame in that. Right. Um, so I just shared it on my Facebook. And I was like, hey, guys, I need help keeping my rape kit off of my credit history. Because at that point, the collections agency had said, if you don't pay this, we're going to send it. Um, you know, it will be on your credit history for the next seven years. Right. And it's like, look, in seven years, what? I, I just want to be able to like buy a car, buy a home, like do something and not have to be like, oh, yeah, I was raped this time. Through posting that, I was able to raise the amount of money, I mean, so quick. Like, I think all of my friends and even people that I don't know donated to it, and I raised the exact amount of money that I needed, and so that is now, like, taken care of. Right. But it sucks that it took that. Like, that that my friends had to help pay for my rape kit.
1: That clearly is not an ideal scenario or outcome. What should happen after you get a rape kit done? We'll get into that after one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
3: Okay,
0: so a recent study found that a great hair day makes you happier and more confident. But that same study also revealed that 95% of women don't feel great about their hair.
1: I can definitely relate to the confidence part because if my hair is doing something
3: This is, this is where it gets interesting. So there's what's supposed to happen, and then there there what does happen more times than not, yeah, which creates right. the inconsistency. So what's supposed to happen here in Georgia is that the, um, at the hospital, they send that kit over to the GBI, the Georgia Bureau of Investigation, and they will proceed with testing the kit. Um, you can get a kit done and not report to police also. so that you know is another mediating factor of where things can start to splinter off. So you know if you choose to report to police and the police will have that report they'll have that case open. Um, it should be associated with the kit there'll be more areas to follow up on but you could just get a, a kit done and, and you're not sure what you want to do. So there were some issues um, a couple years back where, some rape kits had been collected at hospitals, and they had not been transferred mm-hmm. to the GBI. And so what the reasoning was from the hospital's perspective is they didn't know that they were supposed to send them. They thought it was a violation of the person's right to privacy, and so they didn't send them. So when you, just, when you start looking at rape kits, what you discover is you're supposed to have this clear path from the hospital to um, prosecution when the judge is slamming the gavel. And almost at every point it the system becomes more complicated and it it breaks down and makes it extremely difficult to tackle this issue from either a systems perspective or even what it's like to be a person caught up in this and experiencing it can often be a total nightmare. And then in terms of just researching it and trying to like wrap your hands around what is in the world is going on with rape kits, it just becomes very complicated.
0: Something else that is complicated is getting to the bottom of any numerical data around rape kits.
3: What I found out is that that not, like you cannot find that number, um, and I dug deep, y'all. Like I even went as far as to call the manufacturing companies who make rape kits and just say, "How many have you sold? Like, can you just even give me a ballpark number of what that figure is?" They did not tell me <laughs> how many all. they sold, um, but, I, you know, I, I kept digging because I thought that might be one way to at least know, you know, how many states have purchased these? Could we track them year over year? So there's, there's no information on how many uh, kits have been bought that are public. Um, I might say there is an exemption for those states who – um, all use the same rape kit because then you could FOIA, Freedom of Information Act requests, um, what state dollars were spent on rape kits. So I'm a fan of states that do that because I feel like there's a paper trail that you can start to dig and uncover. Um, but you know, as you might have read, with with the backlog, and part of the issue of the backlog is that there was no list of people keeping track. So. Right now, we just don't know. We know it's um, it's a lot, but we don't know exactly how much. And even in the um, National Crime Victimization Survey, which is often used to try to estimate how many people have experienced sexual violence, there's and this is a national survey. Um, it's been done for decades. Um, what they do is just like old school call, like cold call people and say, hey, have you been a, a victim of a crime? And then ask them like 90 questions mm-hmm. <laughs> and thousands of people respond and then they use that to est- to make the estimates. So there's one question that kind of gets at rape kits. And it just asks if you had medical treatment afterwards, um, but it doesn't specify rape kit. So even from... The surveys that we, you know, we would normally use to try to estimate the prevalence, we still cannot even get at the number of rape kits that are done. Um, what we do know is anecdotal. So, you know, since uh, Georgia has been more proactive about doing its rape kits, the GBI says it gets 250 a month.
1: Despite its problems now, the rape kit was a revolutionary feminist invention meant to make it easier for survivors to get justice when no one was advocating for them. But over the years, the loss of oversight has plagued rape kits.
3: The history of the rape kit is a really fascinating story. So back in the 70s in Chicago, this, let's see, about 73 um, and this is before there was any kind of victim's rights movement. Um, there was really no victim advocacy movement. This is really kind of at the this fledgling time in our national consciousness where we're like, hey, people who have been victimized, we should care about them and <laughs> advocate right. for their, their rights. The system isn't treating them well. Surprise. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Um so there was this woman, Marty Goddard, and she worked in um, she worked in other uh, gender violence issues. And she beca- she went to this this meeting. Of these these feminist women who are really upset, and they were upset about how the police were treating rape victims, and they were very fiery. Um, you know, they're like, "These cops are pigs! Like, we don't need them. We should do it for ourselves." And she was sitting there and observed the room, and like half the room is like, "You know, f the man. You <laughs> know, we don't want anything to do with you." And the other half was like, "Okay, maybe you know, we can." try to problem solve around that. So she kind of went over to this other side and was like, I'm a smart lady. Maybe we can figure this out. So she partnered up with this professor uh, of the University of Chicago. And the two of them are like, we're just going to do some basic research. We're going to travel around Illinois. We have to travel for our jobs. And we're going to go cold call police officers, um, just walk in and start asking some questions and see what we can figure out. Hey, law enforcement, like, can you just tell me what's the deal with your rape cases? Like, what are the problems? What's doing this? And people would talk to them. So they gathered all this evidence, and eventually they became friends with the Chicago Crime Lab. And the people in the Chicago Crime Lab were like, okay, the real deal is we can't get anywhere. Uh, on rape cases because we don't get good evidence. The evidence that we get is basically garbage. Um, the people at the hospital mean well, but they have no earthly idea what to do. You know, they'll take, uh, you know, we'll swab your cheek and put it on one slide, and then, you know, we'll swab uh, another part of your body and put it on this other slide, and then we'll just slap them together. <laughs> oh, so, <laughs> So, like, no sense of... Um, how to handle, you know, forensic data. And she's like, okay, I can work with this. And so she engages in this multi-year process to um, create this rape kit and prototype it. And so she rallies some other people around, and they build out these protocols. They build out, you know, what the rape kit should look like. And then— um, They're like, oh, we need funding. There's no funding for the rape kit. It's the 70s. There's no victim advocacy. All of these men control the grant funds. They, you know, they give money to the Girl Scouts. They think that's sufficient. Um, They don't really want to support this. And so she hooks up uh, with some of her friends who connect her with the Playboy Foundation. And the Playboy Foundation steps up and they're like, yeah, this is a great idea, we're going to um, completely fund the first 10,000 kits. And, oh, by the way, you need people to assemble it. Well, we're going to take these. Um, it was called the Retired Persons Volunteer Service, RSVP. And We're going to um, – they think the Playboy bun is cute, so we're just going to get these uh, folding tables. We'll buy them sandwiches, and, like, they are just going to assemble your kits. And so that is what happened. Like, an assembly line of older persons wow. <laughs> at Playboy – Making it. So, <laughs> it's like the best story, right? I know, this is it's wild. Like fascinating. I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> so, so they, made, so they made the kit, and they actually even named it after the guy in the crime lab. They didn't even take the credit for themselves, which is why they have kind of been erased out of this history and why remembering it is really important, because um, it, they've never been a part of it. So... What they did to implement the rape kit, you know, as this formal process was to have complete control over it. So when they had been walking into these police departments and building up all these contacts, they were really great at relationship building. And so they were able to call up these high-powered Politicians, people in the crime lab, members of law enforcement, and they had this huge team of allies. And they're like, "All right, we're going to roll out this massive training system." And so, these women did it for themselves again. Um, they trained six thousand people over the course of like two years in Illinois on how to do a rape kit. You know, started teaching hospital personnel about this is what trauma is. This is how um, someone who's experienced violence, you know, might present that might not make sense to you. Oh, by the way, here are the proper ways to treat them, um, which is not to take all their clothes and wrap them in a paper gown, send them on the street, and then sometimes also call up the newspaper. Things that would never happen now. It's very different, which is why the victim advocacy movement is so critical. And so while they were in Illinois over the course of like 10 years, they trained all these people— and then eventually shut it down because they thought that they were successful, that they had done what they set out to achieve. And then, as the rape kit rolled out to these other states, it didn't have that close oversight that Marty Goddard brought in ensuring that people were trained properly, that they had this iterative process of updating uh, the forms. And so, it as the rape as it rolled out, um, as it scaled up, it lost that necessary oversight to make sure that hospitals and law enforcement and victims are working together as a team to make sure that these cases move forward, in my opinion.
0: It's not all bad news, though. There are several steps being taken to improve the situation and things we can do. Here's Renee again.
3: I think what we've seen over the past few years where people are, like, clawing this issue out of the shadows is very helpful. Right. Like, it. It's not transparent, and it should be more transparent. People should know, like, what Georgia or Atlanta's protocols for how they cope with a sexual assault case should be very clear to everyone. Like, we should know what the, the order of operations are, that something is going to happen. You know, when this happens, your kid is here. Um, you know, at this stage, then this happens. Um, right now, survivors don't even have basic rights to follow up on the rape kits, you know, so that adds a whole other layer of opaqueness to this process. So, um, and much like with Marty Goddard, it's usually women who have experienced assault who become really powerful activists in the space and that they are the ones who get this important policy either at the state level or the national level um, put in place. So I think we should celebrate those victories There was a woman, she was assaulted uh, while she was at Cambridge. Um, She was an Asian-American woman, and the statute of limitations in Massachusetts is 15 years. Mm -hmm. Um, And she was told by law enforcement that she had to call every six months to make sure that her rape kit was not thrown in the trash. So this... (laughs) Talk about another cost: having to, you know, take all this emotional time out of your life for years to just ensure that your rape kit is not trashed. And she ended up passing a national law on survivors' rights and was nominated for a Nobel uh, Peace Prize right. last year, also, which is great. Prevention is, uh, yeah, <laughs> is 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 great. Um, I think also, you know, the legal system is never probably going to be satisfying for a lot of social problems, and this is definitely one of them. So I think things that we can do is find other ways to support survivors outside of the legal system um, that we can have a lot more control over and may be way more meaningful to that person. So, you know, ensuring that our... Sexual assault advocate, you know, these social service agencies who do this and do it well, you know, that we support them with our dollars and and vocally and that we make sure that people know they're there so that if you are assaulted and you do want a kit and you do decide you want to pursue criminal justice, that you can at least do it with someone who's really on your side.
0: So how about Rebecca? What does she do to cope?
2: I think it's taken me a long time to not be ashamed of it. Um, I, I think that just comes with time. Right. I think that just space away from it, um, you know, is very helpful and right. has always been very helpful for me. Um, I think beyond that, uh, sharing my story with close friends of mine and family members mm-hmm. has been completely invaluable because I um, – I think, and of course now with Me Too, it's a little more, it's out there, you know, hopefully people, more people recognize how many people uh, that sexual assault and rape has affected. Um, But I think prior to, you know, prior to that, it's like, oh, you know, you are supposed to feel ashamed and you're supposed to not tell anyone. And that feeling of being alone is so, um, it just, it's just horrible because you feel so ashamed because you're like, oh, God, no one else has gone through this, you know. And so for the longest time, it was good for me because I was like, cool, my parents know that this happened to me and like they love me anyway, (laughs) you know. And um, I think just knowing that like that didn't define um, anything beyond uh, beyond what happened uh, was very helpful for me. Right. I also, I'm a very creative person, so I'm I'm the type that, like, I have to write things down. I have to, like, get things out. Um, and, like, I wrote a play about my experience, and that right. was very helpful because I was able to kind of process my trauma that way. Right. Um, and I co-wrote it with a very good friend of mine who also knows that that happened to me, mm-hmm. so that was very helpful because she also was like, oh, wow, this is really, like, messed up that all this happened to you. Right. You know, um, and I think just talking about it for me has been very helpful. Um, Now, that said, I don't think that's helpful for everyone and everyone's experience. Right. Um, But for my personal experience, just feeling like I can talk about it is um, more than anything, uh, it it just is encouraging to me. And it has helped me process the trauma a little more. Um, I don't ever really feel triggered by the Me Too thing. If anything, I feel like it makes me feel a little more empowered and like I have a little more agency because it's not just a, a single voice.
1: No, it's not. That about brings us to the end of this episode. But before we go, here are some resources from Renee.
3: I think definitely local. So if you go to the Georgia network, uh, gnasa.com, they'll list all 21 of just 21, y'all, mm-hmm. um, of those registered SANE programs. And, like, everyone should support them. They are doing some real-deal work for people, huffing it on the ground, completely thankless, um, not certainly not paid enough. <laughs> um, I think that's a great place to start because they're community and they are doing the tough work. And then also, like, Amanda... Uh, New ones RISE, you know, organizations like this that are nonprofit on the ground trying to change like fight for victims' rights through right. policy, we should also support them. So, you know, like RISE got the national um law in place about not being able to destroy rape kits, but states have to also adopt them. Right. So, you know, we start the movement here, start the movement in your you know, whatever your home state is and get it get it that way.
1: Listeners, if you have any resources from your state you'd like to share, or if you need to be connected with someone, please let us know. You can email us at momstuff at howstuffworks.com or find us on Twitter at momstuffpodcast and on Instagram at stuff mom never told you. Thanks so much to both of our interviewees for agreeing to speak with us. Thanks as always for producer Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Thank you.